I'd like to invite you to turn your Bibles now to the book of Acts, the book of Acts chapter 6. We continue our study now in the book of Acts chapter 6, and our scripture reading will come verses 8 through 15, 8 through 15. The book of Acts chronicles the history of the beginning of the church. We have looked at the inception beginning in Acts chapter 2 through its growth, and they are increasingly finding the opposition has grown, and we look now at a man named Stephen, who is a prominent figure in the middle of two other figures, Peter and Paul. Here in Acts chapter 6, and our scripture reading will begin with verse 8. The text reads, And Stephen, full of grace and power, was performing great wonders and signs among the people. Some men from what was called the synagogue of the freedmen, including both Cyrenians and Alexandrians, and some from Cilicia and Asia, rose up and argued with Stephen, but they were unable to cope with the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. Then they secretly induced men to say, we have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and against God. And they stirred up the people, the elders and the scribes, and they came up to him and dragged him away and brought him before the council. They put forward false witnesses who said, this man incessantly speaks against the holy place, this holy place, and the law. For we have heard him say that this Nazarene, Jesus, will destroy this place and alter the customs which Moses handed down to us. And fixing their gaze on him, all who were sitting in the council saw his face like the face of an angel. Let's bow together in a word of prayer before we begin our study once again this morning. Our God in heaven, we give you thanks for your grace and your love. We give you thanks, Father, for you are our God, and that we have the privilege of hearing from your word. So, Father, open the eyes of our heart once again that we might see great and wonderful things from thy law. In Jesus' name, amen. The New York Times profiled not long ago a 32-year-old man in Afghanistan named Yosef. He had briefly escaped civil war in his home country by fleeing to Germany, where many of his siblings live. At that point, he had already rejected the Muslim faith of his family. Out of curiosity, he got to know Protestant missionaries and attended church services held in Farsi, his native language. He told the reporter, quote, when I threw away my Islamic beliefs, I was living in a space of spiritual emptiness. During this time, I was studying different religions, Buddhism, Islam, Hinduism, and Christianity. Buddhism, Hinduism, and Christianity. I was studying Islam as well. I think I was impressed, he says, by the personality of Jesus himself. The fact that he came here to take all of our sins, that moved me. I admired his character and personality long before I was baptized. 
After being released from a refugee camp, he became a follower of Christ and was soon deported. Today, back in Afghanistan, he's hiding from family members who have vowed to kill him for renouncing Islam. A brother-in-law named Ibrahim even offered the New York Times reporter $20,000 to tell him where Yosef is hiding. Quote, if I find him, once we are done with him, I will kill his three-year-old son as well because his son is blank, Ibrahim said. Joseph's wife and child are also hiding in Pakistan, but as for Yosef, his faith remains unshaken. The article concludes, quote, for Yosef, who has recently changed hiding places, the time passes slowly now with little company other than his Bible. He can hear the Mazin calling Muslims to prayer, a reminder of danger's proximity and the paradox he lives now. Quote, when I threw away my convictions, it was like an imaginary prison. But now, it is the other way around. My body is in prison, but my soul is free, unquote. Such is the antagonism against some who follow Christ today. His story is not unique, and those who oppose Christ or those who oppose those who proclaim the gospel, that has been around ever since sin entered into the world and ever since Satan fell. When we look at the life of Christ, as his ministry and influence grew, so did the opposition, so did those who hated him, so did those who wanted him dead, all the way to the cross. And just as the life of Christ was chronicled, such so too, as we look at the book of Acts, as the church grew, so did the opposition to the preaching of Christ. So did the imprisonment of the apostles and their flogging and persecution. And in chapter 4, as we have seen, the growth of the church had swelled to some 20,000 plus individuals, no doubt, in a very short period of time. So did the opposition grew and swelled. When we look at the book of Acts from a bird's eye view, from a 20,000 feet in the air view, we can look at it perhaps in geographic terms. For in Acts chapter 1 verse 8, Jesus said to his disciples, you shall be my witnesses in Jerusalem, which encompasses chapters 1 through 7, and in all of Judea and Samaria, which encompasses chapters 8 through 12. And even to the remotest parts of the earth, chapters 13 through 28. But we can also look at the book of Acts from a bird's eye view in a biographical sense as well. The ministry in Jerusalem predominantly focuses on the apostle Peter, who ministered predominantly to Jews. The ministry of those in Judea and Samaria might be characterized by Stephen, who ministered to Greek-speaking Jews who had returned to the area, and the ministry to the uttermost parts of the earth focuses on the missionary efforts of the Apostle Paul, who ministered primarily to Gentiles. And today we will be looking at this godly man named Stephen, this godly individual who was a powerful witness for God. And in the next chapter, we will see that he will die as a martyr for his testimony for Jesus Christ. And by the way, the word for witness is the word from which we get the word martyr. A martyr is a witness. Stephen, as we think about 
him must have been an exceptional man of God. The church at this point, as I mentioned, had swelled to 20,000 plus individuals and continually growing. And in the beginning of Acts chapter 6, what had happened was that there was a complaint that had arisen. In the early verses of chapter 6, a complaint had arisen because there were Hellenistic Jewish widows who were being overlooked in their daily serving of food. Hellenistic Jews simply refers to those Jews who, had, who were Jewish by ethnicity but had adopted some of the Greek culture, some of the Greek customs, the Greek language, had adopted to varying degrees the Greek way perhaps of thinking even. Hellenistic Jews, however, when they returned to spend their life, the rest of their life perhaps in Jerusalem and the surrounding area, or had perhaps come to celebrate the Feast of Pentecost and they were converted, these Hellenistic Jews were not looked upon very favorably by the local Jews who had preserved their own customs and traditions and language. They were looked upon as second-class citizens. So to address this problem of these Hellenistic Jewish widows who were being overlooked in the daily serving of food, the apostles needed to choose Choose men to take care of this problem out of the tens of thousands of new believers in the church. Stephen topped the list of those qualified. He must have been an astounding individual. And in the selection of leaders, just as we saw before, they had to be biblically qualified. You just don't choose people because they have a willing heart to do so. You don't choose people to lead because they, oh, everyone gets a chance, or they might rise to the occasion if we give them this position. No. They chose leaders who were godly and who were biblically qualified. And to be recognized, as it says in verse 3 of chapter 6, it says, the apostle said to the brethren, to the church, select from among you seven men of good reputation. Stephen must have had an exceptional reputation to be recognized out of tens of thousands of people, to be chosen out of a lot such as that. Not only that, it wasn't as if he had been a Christian for very long. I mean, the birth of the church, we're talking about days, weeks, maybe months. But the point being, it was a very young church. And these were young Christians. And yet Stephen, even in that short period of time, had a tremendous reputation and a tremendous ministry to have been known among the people of the congregation as an outstanding individual. And so today we're going to take a look at this man named Stephen. We're going to look at the attributes of this witness of God. We're going to look at the antagonists that opposed him and their attack, and we're going to look at how God glorified himself in his appearance later on. The attributes of God's witness, the attributes of Stephen, verse 8. And Stephen, full of grace and power, was performing great wonders and signs among the people. His name, Stephanos, means a victor's crown, a victor's crown. And it says in the Bible that he was full of grace and power. 
To be full is a phrase that means more than just, well, it characterized him. It means that it dominated him. It dominated who he was. When we look back at verse 3, the Bible tells us that Stephen was full of the Spirit, meaning that he was completely surrendered in obedience to the Spirit's control. The idea of being filled by the Spirit was used by Paul in Ephesians 5.18, where it says, do not be drunk with wine, for that is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit. And the contrast there is between being drunk with wine or being inebriated and being filled with the Spirit. When somebody is drunk, they're no longer in complete control of their faculties. And when we think of that idea of being full, it is to be completely given over to whatever it is that dominates that person. Today, we might think of somebody even in a sense of, well, they're full of insecurity or they're full of fear or they're full of anger or whatever it is. We mean by that that their heart and their mind is dominated by that. And Stephen, it says here, was a person who was full of the Holy Spirit meaning that he was fully surrendered, fully given over to what God wanted him to do. We see that he was fully surrendered in obedience to God. And that's the good question for us. Would we say that we are full of the Spirit? Are we fully surrendered to God? Is that part of our prayer every day that, God, whatever you want me to do, I'm willing to do wherever you would want me to go. I'm willing to surrender all and go. Whatever you want me to make right, that is what I am willing to do. Or do we, in our own mind's eye, have all sorts of contingencies and excuses and reasons why we cannot do such and such of a thing? Yet God... When He commands us to do something, we are to be people who are fully surrendered to the Spirit of God and obedience to Him. But here in verse 8, it tells us that He was full of grace, full of grace. Now, I don't think that references God's grace upon Him. It references that He was always gracious. He was a person who was gracious. He didn't have a vengeful attitude. He was uh, gracious to those who opposed him, even though he came across perhaps, perhaps even firmly in the next chapter, as we'll see, and yet he was gracious even to the point when we look at the, look at the text in chapter 7, verse 60, they were about to stone him, and he cried out to God on their behalf, saying, Lord, do not hold the sin against them. Do not hold the sin against them. In His grace, they were undeserving. Here they were going to stone an innocent man, a man who was a prophet of God, a man who was declaring the Savior, and here He prays for them. Is that you? Is that you when there are people who rub you the wrong way or who mistreat you or who perhaps have done something against you that you pray for them? Are you gracious and are you kind? Are you full of grace when you're insulted? How could a person do that? Well, not only does it require a person who 
leads a spirit-filled life who is fully surrendered to God and desires to do what pleases God, but a person must have a strong and clear sense of their own unworthiness, of their own unworthiness, that they are recipients of God's grace, that they are recipients of God's grace, and grace is that which is received by one who is unworthy of it. The person who is unworthy of it is not demanding, not complaining, critical, walking around with a sense of entitlement. That surely isn't characteristic of a person who is gracious. It is humble people who are full of grace. They see themselves as unworthy sinners who have been saved by God's grace and who can extend that same grace because they see themselves how God sees them. And they look to the needs of others rather than being fixated on themselves. And Stephen was such a man. He was a man who was full of grace, surrendered fully to God. The Bible also tells us in verse 8 that he was a man who was full of power. And he was performing great wonders and signs among the people. Great signs and wonders among the people. It's interesting to note in the New Testament Only the apostles and Stephen and Philip and Barnabas are said to have performed miracles. Not that miracles didn't occur ever aside from them, but for them to perform miracles, it was only them. The imperfect tense of was performing shows that Stephen was continuously or regularly doing this, that he was doing these signs and wonders that were performed among the people. These were not one-off occurrences in some faraway place. This was regularly done as part of who he was as God's giftedness. God had gifted him. And they were a validation of him as a messenger. As Hebrews chapter 2, verse 3 and 4 tells us, how will we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? After it was first spoken through the Lord, It was confirmed to us by those who heard, God also testifying with them, both by signs and wonders and by various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit according to His own will. He was a man who was full of grace, fully surrendered to the Holy Spirit, a man full of power as he demonstrated and as God used him as a testimony Where there is obedience, there will be these works, good works. There are no good works. There's disobedience to God. Stephen was an incredibly godly, an incredibly gracious man who ministered in the power of the Spirit. That's who he was. Well known with a good reputation among tens of thousands of new believers. Secondly, though, we see his antagonists his antagonists in verse 9. But some men from what was called the synagogue of the free men, including both Cyrenians and Alexandrians and some from Cilicia and Asia, rose up and argued with Stephen. Now the synagogue was a place of gathering where the Jews gathered. And many have suggested that the synagogue structure had existed all the way back to the Babylonian captivity hundreds of years before Christ where Jews would gather together. It was basically an assembly of the Jews. That's what a synagogue was. You only needed 10 men in order to form a synagogue. And the historians tell us there are some 480 synagogues in and around Jerusalem at that time, catered to people who spoke different languages, 
As you recall from our last time, there were some synagogues that used the Septuagint, which was the Greek translation of the Hebrew Scriptures, because they were Hellenistic. There were others that catered to various cultures, various languages. There were synagogues, many of them, and they had a place. And the purpose for that gathering was primarily for prayer and the hearing of the Hebrew Scriptures. And here, there are groups of people that had arisen in order to argue with Stephen. The first group here was from the synagogue of the freedmen. The synagogue of the freedmen. Now, the synagogue of the freedmen was composed of individuals, former Jewish slaves, because back in the day, in 63 B.C., Pompey had come and he had hauled off a number of Jews and taken them as slaves to Rome. And these Jews who were enslaved in Rome eventually found their way to freedom. And when they returned to Jerusalem, they formed a synagogue. That synagogue was known as the synagogue of freed men, freed former Jewish slaves that had been enslaved by Pompey. Then there were Cyrenians. They were from a city off of Libya, Africa, where there's a large Jewish colony. There were some from Alexandria, the capital of Egypt at that time, founded in 332 B.C. by Alexander the Great. And there was also a large Jewish population there with a great library. You've probably heard of the Alexandrian Library. Jewish scholars were there as well. And then there was Cilicia in Asia. And this is interesting because they were Roman provinces in Asia Minor. And Paul's hometown, whom we will be introduced to in the coming weeks, the Apostle Paul, his name was Saul prior to it being changed to Paul, his hometown of Tarsus was located in Cilicia, and he likely attended one of those synagogues of Cilicia. And these individuals rose up and they argued with Stephen. And that word for argued wasn't some sort of... Uh, more of a quarrel. It wasn't a quarrel per se. It was implied in the word that there was some sort of debate, uh, a heated discussion perhaps, uh, where there was back and forth discussion and exchange and content likely about Jesus being the Messiah because we see later on that's what Stephen would promote and the deity of Christ and his resurrection. And one commentator even suggests that it is not impossible at all to conceive that in these men who had risen up to debate against Stephen, among them would have been the Apostle Paul, since he would have been from the Cilician synagogue. You can imagine what a sight that would be. Here, Stephen, a believer who was filled by the Spirit, a godly man, well-versed in the Old Testament, as we will see later on, debating Saul, who would later on be saved by Christ. You can be assured that there was a great, great debate. You can be assured at any time as well, when God begins to move in a great and powerful way, the enemies of God will oppose. Just as we saw as the ministry of Christ began to grow and His influence began to grow and the anger against Him grew and the opposition of Him began to grew, grow and we would see that all the way it would lead to the cross, so too as the church grew, there would be opposition and it would grow. They would attack. And that's what happened in verse 10, the attack on God's witness. Verse 10, but they were unable to cope with the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. Well, they had a debate. They had a debate. And the enemies of God lost. 
They could not cope. They could not cope not only against the application of the Scriptures and the proper interpretation of the Old Testament, but they could not cope with the Spirit of God which directed Stephen as he explained and debated the truth of the Word of God to them. Now, I don't know if you've ever watched some of these debates today, even with Christian apologists, whether they be on university campuses or whatever it may be, but I've been very impressed, whether it's Ravi Zacharias or other Christian apologists, how gracious they have been to their detractors. Godly Christian apologists who don't engage in name-calling or in ad hominem attacks, personal attacks or ridicule, or even though there may be somebody who may be shaking their head or yelling angrily at them or in opposition to them, they respond with great graciousness. 1 Peter 3.15 tells us that that's how we're to respond. It says, sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts, always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you, yet with what? Gentleness and reverence. When John Bunyan, the author of Pilgrim's Progress, was attacked for his faith and testimony, he says, quote, Therefore, I bind these lies and slanderous accusations to my person as an ornament. It belongs to my Christian profession to be vilified, slandered, reproached, and reviled. And since all this is nothing but that, as God and my conscience testify, I rejoice in being reproached for Christ's sake." Unquote. Where is it in an ornament? It's part of being a Christian to be slandered, to be reproached, to be reviled, to be vilified, as John Bunyan would say, for speaking that which is true, for proclaiming Christ. Well, that's what Stephen did. And they debated him, but they were unable to cope. So what did they do? Verse 11. They secretly induced men to say, we have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and against God. Well, they couldn't attack Stephen's character because he was gracious, because he was a man of tremendous reputation, so they attacked his content. They attacked his content. The word for secretly induced means that they suggested or they prompted individuals who would, with evil motives, twist what Stephen said, and we're going to see that in the following verses. And this is the same tactic. This is the same tactic that they did bring against Jesus at the trial of Jesus in Matthew chapter 26. They found some false witnesses who became their attack dogs, and they twisted the words of Stephen, and they accused him of blasphemy. They accused him of blasphemy. Speak blasphemous words. Now, blasphemy is to speak against something that God has deemed sacred, and to speak against Moses, a euphemism against the law of Moses, or against God, was a crime that was punishable by death. It was a crime according to Leviticus 24, verse 16, that was punishable by death. They wanted to accuse him of something that was so heinous that they would be able to indict him and convict him so that he would die. Such was their hatred. So what did they do? Verse 12, they stirred up the people. 
the elders and the scribes, and they came to him and dragged him away and brought him before the council. They put forth false witnesses who said, this man incessantly speaks against this holy place and the law. For we have heard him say that this Nazarene Jesus will destroy this place and alter the customs which Moses handed down to us. The focal point of their debate with Stephen wasn't, you see, about the growth of the church. The focal point and, and debate against him wasn't about his feeding program nor about his signs and wonders, no. Their debate was about the law of Moses and the person of Christ, and so they dragged him away. You see, at this point, up until this point, the Christian church at that time had the favor of the people all the way back to Acts chapter 2. And even when Ananias and Sapphira were struck down, there was still great fear and reverence and respect for the church. But now there was a shift. As these Jews from the synagogues agitated the people and the elders and the scribes, and there was such significant anger that they dragged them away. It was a violent language. It was a violent word, seized with violence. That's what it communicates in front of all of the people. See, back when they had the favor of the people in chapter 5, verse 26, when they arrested the apostles, they arrested them, but they did so in a more congenial manner because it says they were afraid of the people. But this time, their accusations that were false had agitated the people. There was no fear. They violently arrested him and dragged him away, and they brought these accusations using an accusation of derision against Jesus in his own hometown. When it says that this Nazarene Jesus, it was a, 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 a phrase that they wanted to demean him. Because Nazareth wasn't exactly a place where you would expect people to come out from. It didn't have a sterling reputation. As Nathaniel said in John chapter 1 verse 46, when Nathaniel was found and he was called to be a disciple, his quip was, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Nazareth wasn't one of those reputable places. And furthermore, when they accused him that, oh, Jesus said that he would tear down this place, destroy this place, in verse 14. Jesus never claimed that he would destroy the Jerusalem temple. He said to his adversaries, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up, John chapter 2. A few verses later, he explains he was speaking of the temple of his body, not the temple He's speaking of the temple of his body, and yet they took it and twisted the words of Stephen and the words of Christ. And they also charged that he would alter the customs which Moses handed down to us. That somehow Christ had come to change the law. But Jesus was the fulfillment of the law. The Jews had misrepresented, misinterpreted, and misapplied the Old Testament law to their own means, to their own standards, and Jesus came to correct their understanding and to fulfill the law perfectly, to be the perfect sacrifice for our sins on the cross. And so they took the words of Stephen, the words of Christ, and they twisted it. It's not unusual, though. It's not unusual for those who oppose Christ and oppose the gospel to misrepresent Christians, and we should not be surprised if it happens to us. 
Charles Spurgeon, the great preacher in England, said, God Himself was slandered in paradise by Satan. Let us not expect, therefore, to escape from the venomous tongue, unquote. Well, even all of this, a sterling man of Stephen's reputation, there were opponents who opposed him and they attacked him by slandering him, and yet God in His witness showed His appearance like that of an angel, verse 15, and fixing their gaze on Him. All who were sitting in the council saw His face like the face of an angel. Here Stephen was before the 70 ruling members of the Sanhedrin with his accusers having accused him of things that were worthy of death. There was something, a glow, a radiance, whatever it was, something like the face of an angel. And many times you can read on a person's countenance whether they seem guilty or remorseful or repentant or defiant. Sometimes you can tell by their body language whether or not they are innocent or guilty, but Stephen, they looked at him, and his face was like that of an angel. That is God's doing. That is God's doing for his witness, his child. We may be tempted to think when we look at these passages related to persecution and trials that this might not ever come to us, George Wingram, an English scholar and theologian in the 1800s, said, quote, When all smiles are upon you, you may think there is no need to talk of such a thing as separation from the love of Christ. But if persecution were to come and you were to be led forth to the fire, you would feel that the love of Christ is a very precious thing, unquote. And such would be the case of even in our day of Kayla Mueller, just 26 years old, captured by ISIS two years ago, and just about a year and a half ago, on February 10th, 2015, it was the U.S. officials who confirmed that Muslim extremists had murdered her while in captivity. It was in the spring of 2014 that, as a captor, she wrote to her family. And the letter that she wrote began with her assurance that she had been treated well, and that is, quote, in a safe location, completely unharmed and healthy, unquote. And this 26-year-old aid worker goes on to apologize touchingly to her family for the suffering that she put them through because of her captivity. And then she writes this, quote, I remember mom always telling me that all in all, in the end, the only one you really have is God. I've come to a place to experience where in every sense of the word, I have surrendered myself to our creator because literally there was no one else. Kayla was involved in the campus ministry at Northern Arizona University and goes on to relate, quote, by God and by your prayers, I felt tenderly cradled in free fall. She adds, quote, I've been shown in darkness, light, 
plus what I have learned that even in prison, one can be free. I am grateful. I have come to see that there is good in every situation. Sometimes we just have to look for it. She concluded, please be patient. Give your pain to God. I know you would want me to remain strong. This is exactly what I am doing. Do not fear for me. Continue to pray, as will I. By God's will, we will be together soon. All my everything, Kayla. What her and Yosef have written and said is true. That many can be imprisoned for their faith. That we can be persecuted and face the vilification or the mischaracterization or the mistreatment by others who do not like Christians, hate Christ, or opposed to God. But what they have read and said is even though they may be imprisoned, their soul is free. And that is the true freedom that God offers to all who would come to Him. Freedom from sin, freedom from guilt, freedom from our bondage and the freedom that we experience because of His grace, the forgiveness of sins if we place our faith and our trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. And all of that is by the grace of God when we realize that God is the one who sent His Son to die on the cross that we might have salvation for those who would repent and turn from their way and receive God's forgiveness and beg of Him to save them from their sins. And God desires to grant to us that freedom, that freedom if we have never received that free gift of salvation. For Christ died and was raised from the dead. He died for our sins as a punishment that we might have life, life everlasting. And that is the witness that we are to have to a lost world. Let's bow together in prayer. Father in heaven, we give you thanks for your grace and your love. We pray, God, that you would help us, O Father, to rejoice in the fact that we can be testimonies of your grace to a world that desperately needs you. In Jesus' name, amen.